Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stamper. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends, a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network, airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 6.45 Eastern, here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139-335. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage foreclosure defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, The Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is, vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more, plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and TILA rescission. With the help of our guests, we'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stanford, reminding y'all, when it comes to saving your house, don't let the Banker Blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other. Now please welcome the host of the show, Greg the Goose. Welcome, everyone, to episode 34 of the Gallant Goose and Friends here on Talk Show number 139-335. Today is Thursday, May 19th, 2016. We appreciate you all being here. Please keep passing the word along to your friends and family so our flock can grow. Our topic for tonight is how to save your estate by busting the initial violations or crimes done against you and avoiding the box canyons that might lead you to an ambush. Many consumers have been confronted with litigation over credit or mortgage debt since the banks popped their own credit bubble back in 2008. This resulted in a new industry of credit and mortgage rescue experts, with some legitimate in their methods and some with untested theories. Certainly, untested theories are great to examine in a law school or political science classroom where you're only risking a better grade. However, when it comes to courtrooms where judges are looking to stay as close to the status quo of case law as possible, it can be very dangerous. Tonight, for the first time on this program, we're delighted to have with us controversial blogger, author, researcher, and consumer advocate, Mr. Bob Hurt. As many of you know, Bob has become somewhat of a foil or lightning rod with respect to some other folks and their differing viewpoints on foreclosure defense. However, when listening to him, one finds out rather quickly that his passion is driven by his sincerity to try to help people find practical success 
and avoid the many box canyons that lead you to ambush. This evening, we hope to get a better understanding of those different types of choices and where they lead. But before we get ahead of ourselves, a few important words. The Gallon Goose is not associated with any other program, law firm, accounting firm, or any other legal accounting or other licensed professional entity and is the sole responsibility of the private group of friends which constitute it. All opinions expressed are those of the participants alone and no warranties expressed or implied. This call is being recorded for rebroadcast, so we do not recommend disclosing your private contact information. To contact or be contacted by other participants on this call, please email the host and we'll do our best to connect you offline. To hear past recordings, just go to www.talkshoe.com forward slash tc forward slash 139335 and select the episode. Also, to read the chat text from any past show, just go to www.chatgrabber.com. Type in our show number 139335 and select the episode. If you would like to receive a weekly email notifying you of the program, please email the host at thegallongoose at gmail.com with the subject line, Please add me to the goose. To be removed from the mailing list, use the subject line, Please pluck my goose. Welcome back, everyone. Remember, justice should be blind, not you. Realize that you are as powerful as the tools that you master. So don't forget to check out some of those tools at www.howtowinincourt.com slash win slash goose. And for those of you experiencing collectors or court cases messing with your credit scores, please remember to go to www.fixmyreport.com for a fast, easy, and final solution to credit score and credit damage. Now, for those of you who don't already know, here's a little bit about tonight's guest. Based in Clearwater, Florida, native Texan Mr. Bob Hurt quips that, according to documented legend, he entered the world on May 29, 1943 at 4 a.m. in Houston's Herman Hospital. After high school, he served nine years in the U.S. Navy, mostly aboard submarines. Following his Navy service, he worked in the computer and electronics industry in one way or another until he retired. He had various roles, including technician, engineer, programmer, writer, trainer, marketer, salesman, web designer, manufacturer, and executive. Bob considers himself to be a truth seeker, so in 2006, after retirement, he decided to start studying law. Since then, he has analyzed and written his personal reviews and thoughts on a number of topics and cases from a legal layman's perspective. A prolific writer, in addition to law, Bob has penned many articles and blogs on topics ranging from health and philosophy to politics and the arts, and even a few interesting recipes tossed in there. After the housing bubble crash of 2008, he was disturbed when he saw millions of Americans start losing their homes in foreclosure, often from fear and lack of understanding, but also sometimes from bad or inept lawyering. So he adopted the cause of trying to help homeowners by studying to figure out the best ways to save their homes. The outgrowth of his work was the creation of his consumer advocacy, advocacy website, MortgageAttack.com, where he posts articles and blogs on the subject of defending against foreclosure by attacking the errors, omissions, and plain old violations of law found in the initial mortgage and servicing contracts. A reminder to everybody, since this is America and the land of freedom of speech and many opinions, we ask you to listen, evaluate, and question what Bob is bringing to the table with an open mind and curious spirit. Please remember, as always, as is the policy on our show, be respectful and please don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, please welcome for this evening our guest, Mr. Bob Hurt. Hello, Bob. Are you there? I'm here. It's really terrific that you can join us tonight. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Mr. Goose. Ah. So, Bob... Uh, it's, or, is it, or is it Mr. Gallant Goose? Sorry. Well, sorry. well it has the same initials, right? Hey, anyway, Bob, it looks like you're going to be celebrating your 74th birthday in 10 days. 
Would you please accept our early wishes for a happy birthday? Uh, well, thank you very much. It'll be my 73rd. Uh, uh, but you're close enough. <laughs> well, I'm not trying to push you down the road that fast. <laughs> <laughs> to begin, there's so many things that we could talk about, but perhaps you could fill us in on where you see the field of consumer defense going, both with individuals acting on their own right now or through lawyers. Do you think things are improving for Americans or not? Um, I think uh, they are improving for some Americans and going downhill for others. The way to improve when you talk about consumer defense um, is, number one, to live an ethical life. Don't break the law. If you, if you want to make a deal with somebody, make it an honest deal. Give in exchange for what you get. There's no such thing as something for nothing. I don't think that that idea would even apply with God's love. Somehow, he expects us to become like him, and that is a loving, responsible entity. So step number one in all of this, as we you know, approach the end of our lives, which we start doing from birth, is to try to become like the greatest possible being we can become. So live ethically is the basic guide for that. And by doing so, we won't try to get something for nothing, such as trying to uh, intentionally breach the note in a mortgage uh, by stopping and making payments with some harebrained idea of how we're going to slip one over on the bank and get the house free and clear. That just doesn't happen for most 99-point-plus percent of the people who try it because the courts are going to enforce a mortgage contract. Uh, and if the courts don't do it, the state legislature has already set up a method in many states called non-judicial foreclosure to where a trustee is going to order the foreclosure and the sale of a property in order to pay that debt. So, well, go ahead. So my point here is to say this is all part of the idea of becoming ethical, is don't think that just because you got cheated, uh, you should go cheat somebody else, or just because you've had a hard time. Okay, so let's talk about how people got cheated real badly. What drove everything downhill, got me started in, in this interest, was the change in the efforts of banks to make mortgage loans that they knew borrowers would not be able to pay. And what happened is that created a snowball effect of foreclosures um, that drove down the price of real estate. And as the real estate values collapsed, people who had invested in houses then could not find renters because renters couldn't pay rent, so they got kicked out. And that made a lot of uh, houses that were simply rental properties go into foreclosure. And that caused overall an enormous loss in, in, in jobs. And as people lost their jobs, they became less able to make their payments, and that drove more people into foreclosure. So that's what happened to precipitate the financial crisis of 2008, and 
This was all written up in an, in the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission report, how government and the lending industry colluded in behaviors that resulted in this collapse, which made homeowners, borrowers all over America lose the equity in their homes, face foreclosure, and then instead of the bank helping to shoulder the equity loss, the, the borrower got stuck with the entire thing. So what I concluded in 2008 or 2009, it took me about a year to get my head screwed on straight with respect to this. Uh, what I concluded is that you cannot go to a court and ask the court to punish a lender because the lending industry and the government colluded in an activities that collapsed the economy. You have to prove in the court that you got injured and that the person that injured you is the person you're going after. So uh, that is, you, you either do that and counter and cross claims and affirmative defenses in being sued for foreclosure, but if you're smart, you'll go on the attack before you ever face foreclosure while you still have the resources to fight a court battle. And then go on the attack, find out who it was that injured you specifically, and prove it to the court, and then have the court award compensatory or punitive damages. So that became my mantra. Uh-huh. Go on the attack. But you cannot attack with an empty hand. You have to have silver bullets in your gun. Normal bullets don't kill the werewolf of a lender who's trying to snatch your house away from you. Um, well, he he will win in a litigation, and you can't hurt him by by going against him with frivolous nonsense, such as some very well-renowned attorneys promote. Um, you have to you can't go at him and say, "Hey, the note was bifurcated from the loan. The, there's paper money. There never was any real money to begin with. The note funded the loan. Uh, who's the real? I don't have the original note. Where's your original note?" All of these things, the court just blows through them because they're not going to show that there's a justification for not making mortgage payments. You were going to ask something? Yeah, I was going to say that it, what it sounded like to me what you're suggesting is that uh, uh, people should find out how they've been harmed or injured, and but for the average man or woman who's making their mortgage payments and is not having an issue, they're not even thinking about the fact that they might have been harmed or injured. You know, you're right. They don't, that only pops into their head after uh, the bank attacks them. Then they start thinking about that. Yeah, usually you're right about that. And that is one of the problems is that people have become very much Pollyannas uh, throughout America, just innocent little ding-dongs who are not paying attention to their affairs properly and who expect everything to be on the up and up. For example, uh, they'll go to closing and won't read a single document in that pile of papers uh, that they signed. They don't read them before closing. They don't read them at closing. And they don't ever scratch through something on one of these pre-printed loan documents or security instrument documents. Um, and and write something in that, that 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 would favor them. Instead, they accept the terms that are there. Okay, but do I have an opinion about those documents, about the standard note and the standard mortgage security instrument or deed of trust? Oh yeah, those are, are proper documents. 
They've been really well thought out and well constructed to pay, protect the interest of the lender and of the borrower. But primarily, since the lender has already put himself out and proven his integrity by giving up the money to the borrower, now it's up to the borrower to prove his integrity by making timely payments and maintaining the property and understanding the various other provisions. You know, there are a lot of people who don't even realize that this deed of trust or mortgage security instrument uh, require that the borrower maintain the property and not let it run, get run down and deteriorate because if they do that, that will reduce its value as um, the collateral for the loan and that will put the lender at great risk of losing his investment if the borrower decides to stop paying and they have to force the sale of the property to cover the debt. So a lot of borrowers never even think about that. It's the borrower's responsibility to maintain uh, insurance against flood and fire and, and other kind of damage and destruction to the property acts of nature and so forth because otherwise the lender will be put at risk unnecessarily too. A lot of borrowers don't, don't realize that the lender has the right to sell that note to and everybody that buys the note has a right to sell it to somebody else. Many times that they want to. Sometimes, somehow somebody convinced them that, uh, convinces a lot of people that, hey, you need to take exception to this or something crooked about it. That's where the whole dispute about robo-signing came from. But the courts across America have uni universally ruled that robo-signing is irrelevant. It doesn't have anything to do with whether the borrower owns the note, owes, owes money for the note. It only has uh, brings a question up of whether this uh, person or that person has the right to enforce that note. And if there's okay. no, no dispute between them, the courts usually don't don't bother. We don't worry about it. Bob, I want to ask you to clarify something for the audience. Uh, could you explain the difference, what you mean when you say mortgage attack versus other forms of foreclosure defense? Sure. Um, a mortgage attack, the traditional thing people do is they wait until they face foreclosure, and then they scramble and hire a lawyer and try to save the house from loss because they get a foreclosure, they get an acceleration notice that the lender has accelerated the note and made it all due and payable right now, and, uh, and that puts them into a panic. So they hurry up and go find a lawyer that will help, that will do anything, anything, please, God, anything to save my house. And the lawyer's community is only so happy to take this up. And like Don Quixote, uh, run charging on a horse at the windmill and smash his lance into it and uh, get nothing out of it. But in reality, the, the lawyer never gets hurt in this. He simply leads the borrower by the hand into foreclosure by filing cookie-cutter copy machine pleadings that he's filed over and over and over for other cases, doing no legitimate and original work on this, on this uh, uh, issue, never bothering to find out how the borrower got injured, and instead simply taking up things like conditions precedent issues such as uh, pre preceding the foreclosure, did the lender serve the borrower with a notice of acceleration? And did he put him on notice and give him adequate time to cure his debt? You know, don't bring it current, and so forth. But a lot of people don't understand that uh, that in the foreclosure defense, 
you're defending against the impossible usually. Need, borrowers need to understand there's a difference between what the, uh, the, the bank, let's call them the creditor, what the creditor can cure, what can they make right that they've got wrong, and what can they not make right. It's sort of like in a tort. If you stomp somebody's foot, his foot gets injured, and he has to go to the doctor and get it fixed. What is your damage? Well, you got a sore toe, so that's pain and suffering, and you have a doctor bill. So those are real damages that a person suffered. But a lender doesn't injure the borrower generally at all by trying to collect the money the borrower owes. So the borrowers need to understand that if they go after the lender for injuring them, because the creditor, say, for example, can't, doesn't have the original note, he claims that he lost it, that is not anything that's going to stall the foreclosure for long because what would happen if, if the court dismisses the complaint of foreclosure because the creditor cannot prove that he has the right to foreclose, all that's going to happen is he's going to go back and get the proof together, then he's going to come back and refile the case, and this time he's going to win. Now, a lot of borrowers think that if the, if the creditor voluntarily dismisses the complaint, that he doesn't have the right to bring it back. Oh, yeah, he does. He can voluntarily dismiss it. That doesn't mean he gave up. It means he's going to go back, fix his problems, and come forward and guarantee that he's going to win. So uh, this is a losing strategy. The, the, the idea of foreclosure defense is that it is generally a losing strategy because there is generally no defense against failing to make your mortgage payment. It isn't the bank's fault you lost your job and can't make payment. It isn't the bank's fault your wife went off with, in a mailman and took the, took the, you know, the, the family funds with her. Uh, there's just no def That's not a defense. The I got sick or I went crazy and can't pay, that's not a defense. All that will happen is the bank will get the house sold by the foreclosure process, get their money, and, you know, the borrower will be thrown on the street if he doesn't move out nicely. So that is foreclosure defense, and generally it fails across America in court after court after court throughout California, Texas, Georgia, and all these other states that have non-judicial foreclosures. People lose their houses, and they, they go try to file quiet title actions in order to stave off foreclosure, or they try to do bankruptcy to stave it off, and they lose the house. They just right and left, it's losses. Now, if they, however, find out how the lender or the creditor, uh, the servicer, the mortgage broker, the appraiser, the title company closing officer, the realtor, the lawyer, or some other third party that is involved in the loan transaction injured them, and proves that to the court, now the court will award compensatory or punitive damages or both. And the fact that the lender, the creditor, knows what will happen when he goes to court and gets hammered by a borrower with these causes of action, these legitimate reasons to sue him for damages, he knows what will happen, and that is that the jury will award these damages to the borrower. He's going to lose a bunch of money. Plus, he's going to have to pay the borrower's legal fees. And that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars by the time the dust settles on a deal. So what does that mean? That means the creditor is going to become willing to settle out of court. And 
do a hush money deal of some sort with the borrower so the borrower will shut up about the bad things the lender creditor did, and then they'll both go away happy without the court getting involved. Because if the courts get involved in this going after the, the creditor or the mortgage broker or the appraiser or somebody, usually because the lender underwrote the loan, underwrote all the shenanigans associated with it, the lender's culpable. If the appraiser lied about the value of the property, the mortgage broker did a bait-and-switch deal or charged excessive interest or any one of numbers of other crazy things, then or if the title company closing officer failed to give the proper TILA disclosures and things like that, next thing you know, they, they're all, those are all causes of action, and they don't want to lose their licenses for pulling such shenanigans. So as a result, they want to keep it quiet. And that, for that reason, they will settle out of court the vast majority of time. However, this, this is a question that borrowers are going to want to prove to themselves. When they want to look and say, hmm, I'm not in foreclosure, I'm paying my bills all right, you mean that I might have a real reason to go after my lender and go on the attack? I mean exactly that. I'll tell you why I mean it. Because the FDIC a few years ago examined over 300 loans and found that 75% of them contained serious appraisal fraud and another 75 to 80% of them, uh, yeah, there's overlap between those, uh, had mortgage fraud of some kind in them. And that's out of just 300 loans that they spot-checked. Well, you can imagine what that means. That means that there's about a 90% likelihood that every borrower in America has been injured by the appraiser, the mortgage broker, the loan broker, the loan officer, the bank, the lender, the title company, some lawyer or other third party, uh, the realtor, uh, even, the, even the seller of the property. Usually we don't end up having problems with sellers and realtors, but it could be. And the, the key to all this is to be able to prove it. Most borrowers simply cannot do this. They're too clueless. They okay. don't understand. Go ahead. You were going to say. I was going to say, so how does one go out, go about initiating an attack on that initial contract and paperwork, and then once they do it, how would they use it? Okay. Well, what they do is they uh, start by examining all of the documents associated with the loan transaction. So let me clarify that because there are so many different circumstances for so many borrowers. I will go through the range of circumstances real quick. Number one, we have all the closing papers. Now, those closing papers are all the documents that were signed and, and there are copies of which were given to the borrower at closing. These most borrowers have that in a little folder uh, in their file cabinet somewhere, and they should have it in the safety deposit box, cracked probably, but just so to make sure they don't lose it in a fire or whatever, because it's very valuable. Uh, the second thing would be the appraisal. A lot of borrowers don't have a copy of it, but the servicer does. And that appraisal shows how it was determined that the house had a particular value that justified the loan that the borrower took out. And the uh, the selling price that the um, seller charged for the property and that the realtor helped him 
get for his property. Then there is the mortgage loan application or a deed of trust loan application. The loan application is critically important because for that, the borrower often has not even give, provided any documentation to prove that he made as much money or had the bills that he had. Sometimes these are called no-docs loans, um, uh, meaning there's, there's no uh, proof that the borrower has a job, that he's uh, had any tax returns based on showing his income. Uh, there's no proof that he has various household and other expenses or what his bills are, how many debts he owes. He just doesn't give any of that. Or he may have an array of those things. But usually, the borrower will um, quite often call, talk to the mortgage broker over the phone. The broker will ask him a bunch of questions and write them down. Then he will concoct a loan application. Then that application will be presented in type form to the borrower at closing, and the borrower will sign it. When the borrower signs a lie on a loan application, that violates a federal law under Title 18-1001 that is falsifying information to the government because all these loans are guaranteed, the bank, bankers are guaranteed, uh, protected by the FDIC, a government corporation. So uh, if they lie to the government, that's a felony. And it's bank fraud to falsify information on a loan application. So what a lot of lenders do is they will, not, not lenders, but the mortgage brokers, they'll take the loan application over the phone and then using the information provided, they will either know already whether the borrower is going to qualify for a loan or whether they can jimmy the numbers a little bit and get the borrower to appear to be qualified. Then he'll float the loan out among the people that he knows and try to get uh, somebody to fund that loan, somebody to agree to fund it. If he finds a lender willing to do it, great. If he doesn't, he'll he'll falsify information on the loan documents, the, uh, the loan examiner uh, application, to make him seem more qualified than they are. And then eventually somebody will, will agree to make the loan based on his false information. He never tells the borrower this. Instead, he types it up, and that's what the borrower signs at closing without ever reading it. So the borrower never verifies it. But the law and the courts will assume, unless the borrower has a real good proof to the other contrary, that the borrower read and knew exactly what he was signing before he signed it. Hey, it's our duty to read what we sign and to agree to it. So that's every borrower's legal duty. And if the borrower signs it without reading it, he's just being a fool. But that still means the borrower committed bank fraud. It's a felony to go to prison for it. And the Department of Justice has put a lot of borrowers in prison because of this, you know, prosecuting them, getting indictments against them, getting them prosecuted and imprisoned. So the, uh, the real trick here is to be able to take the proof to the court and say, look, this mortgage broker lied on the loan application. Here's the, real, the documents that I gave him to prove my income, or he didn't even bother asking. I told him over the phone what he made, and he, he put a lie on it. I never told him that stuff. And, of course, if the borrower's wife is sitting there, or husband, and says, yeah, he's saying the absolute truth. I heard him tell him that. This guy put lies on there. How come we didn't know this? Now maybe the court will believe him. 
But it's going to become a toss-up. In most cases, if there's no proof, written proof. That's why it's important to keep all this stuff in writing and not to guess at it, not to let anybody make a statement that he doesn't put in writing because there's a lot of crooked stuff goes on in this lending process or that can go on. And so you can't be a Pollyanna, you know, a little innocent, dumb person about it. You have to pay attention. So now then, anyway, the point here is that that is another one of the ways that that crooked things happen in the process of the loan transaction. Okay, here's the next item is putting false information on the loan documents such that the the property that's being uh, a mortgage or that's used as collateral uh, might have a wrong property description on it, and that means the loan, the, uh, that security instrument is invalid. <coughs> In other words, the security instrument is a lien on the property, and that lien is not valid. You can prove that in court and get the lien removed. doesn't mean you don't owe the debt. just means they can't take your house for not paying it. And then there's uh, um, um, TILA violations, failing to give proper disclosures or incorrectly calculating the HUD-1 closing re uh, statement that says how much the loan cost and what all the figures were for paying there's equal credit equal credit opportunity act violations where somebody may be african american american indian oriental asian speaks with an accent the loan broker looks at him and say this guy's a credit credit risk so i'm going to stick it to him i'm going to charge him more interest than and i'm going to add maybe another point or two on the for the for the closing costs just to cover me a little bit better and, um, you know, it's crooked. So they'll do things like this. And violating the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, there's bait and switch tactics where one one woman told me that she had uh, the, the, signed the papers at her kitchen table, and they took these papers with them, the loan officer did, and said that she'd mail her a copy of them, and they'd uh, go ahead and put them in the mail to get the loan approved at these certain special rates, the uh, interest rates and terms. So... She calls her up on Friday evening and says, hey, somehow this stuff got lost in the mail. Uh, we've got to get these things by, in by midnight to lock in the rates. So can I come out and get you to sign those papers again? Uh, sure, come on out. It's snowing. She gets there, and it's practically a blizzard, and signs. the woman signs the papers in her galoshes with her house coat on under a flashlight on the hot hood of her car with the motor running, the windshield wipers going, and the snow coming down. Well, do I need to tell you they bait and switched her? They didn't. The terms of the loan were not the same as they promised her that she had signed the table. Pardon me, I'm just... You're, did you say something? No, I was listening to you. Okay, I, I just heard a little static. Okay, so the point is that is another kind of thing that gets done to people um, that is crooked. And then, you know, there are teal violations. If in a situation like signing the papers at your table, some states require that you sign the papers in a um, uh, in a, the, the lender's office. I mean, I've seen, and then, the, the, so there are a whole variety of things like that. And then there's, there are issues with loan modifications, dual tracking, promising people, that uh, telling them that they have to miss payments in order to qualify for a loan mod and then foreclosing on them once they miss the payment. That's perfect.
So all of these things that I'm mentioning here are reasons to attack somebody in that loan transaction. Now, then there are other things, such as bankruptcies, forbearance agreements, and uh, foreclosure defense that was done crookedly by some half-baked attorney who's just trying to scam the power out of money to lead him by the hand of foreclosure. All those things are crooked, too. So what the borrower may have is a multiplicity of people against whom to mount an attack. Now, what he does is he examines his documents, and everything involved in the transaction, including the stuff that the documents don't show, but which he knows happened. And he gathers together all of his proof of these things. Then he notifies the injurious parties plus the lender, and if he's in foreclosure proceedings, the court or the trustee, and he, he um, notifies them that they injured him and he, with, with a grievance, stating, I have this grievance against you. You did this to me. And then sends it to him and asks him for, with a demand to correct him. Now, most of the time, they can't correct these things. But the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act requires they get five days to acknowledge it, five business days, which means a week, 30 business days, which means six weeks, in order to correct them. And if they don't do it within that period of time, you don't have to wait that period of time. You can call the borrower, can call the lawyer up for the servicer and tell them in no uncertain terms, look, I have put you on notice that I've been injured. You're on notice. If you don't bring me a settlement offer from the bank, then when I sue them, I'm going to name you as a third-party defendant in this case, and I'm going to have the judge pull your pants down and smack your bare bottom until it's blistered red to punish you and show you up and embarrass you for not taking action on this when you could have. You owe me a legal duty to do this, and you owe it to your client. So get busy. Get me a settlement offer quick. Now, that may not intimidate them, but it probably will because everything in that is true, and they know it. So this is why they're so eager, the various people here are so eager to settle out of court. So let me give you an example of this. <clears throat> you can see this at mortgageattack.com. By going there and hit the little search item in the upper right-hand corner, type in brown. There's one notorious case, the poster child for mortgage attack, called Brown versus Quick Loans. <clears throat> in this case, were you going to say something? No, go ahead. In this case, Mrs. Brown, Lori Brown, she lived in West Virginia and had a little house downtown in West Virginia that was worth in, uh, in Wheeling, West Virginia. And it was worth about $46,000. Well, she was hit hard times and wanted to lower her loan, mortgage payments. So she went down to Quicken Loans, actually did it along with them over the phone. And they ended up sticking it to her really badly. What they did is they got her house appraised, got her a loan for $144,000. So that's what the appraisal came back. And by the way, that was Quicken Loans who hired the appraiser. They hit a balloon payment in her. They jacked her payments up to over $1,000 a month. She was paying 500 and wanted to lower it. Instead of it going lower, it goes over 1000 They promised her she could refinance it within a month. They never refinance loans. 
They said whatever they could to get that woman to sign away. Well, as expected, she had problems making payments. And before the dust settled on her dilemma with them, she owed them $220,000. So... Bob, uh, hang on a second. Uh, your signal's starting to get a little bit uh, goofy there. I didn't know if something came loose. Hear me okay? Um, try it now. Okay, can you hear me okay? Yeah, there was just there was like uh, wind or noise or rattling or something simultaneously. Go ahead. Okay, I'm sorry. I apologize for that. Okay, so Mrs. Brown goes to this lawyer, um... Jim, Jim Bordas in town, and he sees her across the room. He's, he's in a mansion, got his office in a mansion. And he looks across at the little bedroom where, where it was used as a waiting room, and there she is sitting there crying her eyes out. And he goes over and asks her, Darling, what's the matter? He had known her because they'd done, she'd done work for him in the past. And uh, she unfolds this tale of horror. Well, he's Susan, and Quicken Loans, uh, the court, issues a, a judgment against Quicken Loans for $2.1 million in punitive damages, something like, I don't know, 16000 in compensatory, and gives her the house free. So that's proof you can get a house free, but look how she had to suffer to get it. And then um, charged them 550000 or over 500000 in legal fees and costs. So that's what happened to Quicken Loans. They appealed it, Quicken Loans, and the, and the Supreme Court told them, "Look, this is not exactly right. Go back and correct some of these errors." So he went back into, the, into court, and a new judge changed the award to three and a half million punitive and over eight hundred seventy-five thousand in legal fees. Well, Quicken appealed that, and the Supreme Court says, "You can't, guys, can't do that. That's just ridiculous." So they went back and settled on the original amount plus up to punitive or the compensatory damages to 116000 and they didn't give the woman the house free. So what happened is they find out in the deposition of the, uh, in the appraiser that the lawyer for, for Mrs. Brown had gone to them and demanded uh, asked for a settlement, and they had agreed because they didn't want him to sue them. He filed a lawsuit against them, the, the appraiser and the appraiser's insurance company. They ended up settling out of court for $700,000 because it was either that or jail and, um, and loss of license. And that was going to be a secret deal, which all of these settlements are. They're all hush money deals. Yeah, we'll settle with you, but you have to shut up about it. And what happened is, um, because of the deposition, it came out in court that this is settlement had happened, and Quicken Loans asked the court to deduct that 700000 from the $2.1 in punitive damages, which the court agreed to. But in the end, uh, the, the Jefferson and the Lori Brown team won an award of over $4 million altogether. And the lawyer took 40% for his trouble. Now, that was unusual because finding those causes of action was something like walking out in her backyard and seeing some great big 200-carat diamonds all faceted shining in the sunlight and just picking them up off the ground without even having to dig any shovel full of dirt for them. You see, that 
was easy. But most likely, there were other injuries as well, which the Jim Bordas never found because he didn't look for them. And he didn't look for them because he didn't know how to look for them. He didn't suspect they were there, and he had no experience proving they were there. But these were so egregious and obvious that he couldn't miss them. So as a consequence, this woman ended up with enough money to buy a dozen uh, houses if she wanted to. And that is why this is the poster child for mortgage attack. It shows exactly what you have to do to do it. And it's not as easy as that for a lot of cases because the injuries aren't as evident. But if the borrower is talented enough and will dig for them, uh, the borrower might find them. Now, I know what you're going to ask me. You're going to say, well, Bob, can, if the borrower can't do it, can, is, can he hire a lawyer to do it? And I'm going to tell you I wish, but the hard reality is I doubt it because most lawyers are simply incompetent to find all of those kinds of injuries that could exist underlying a loan transaction. It takes a highly talented, very well-educated uh, a very studied in law specialist to find all those because you have to be skilled in tort law, contract law, um, and appraisals and mortgage applications, uh, mortgage brokering, uh, lending law, all the federal laws and the local state laws that protect people uh, from spurless crooks in the lending industry. <laughs> all, the all the laws having to do with servicing. Um, and understanding what works and doesn't work as far as litigation goes requires that the person have an, an extremely astute capability that only can come from a long, long background in studying case law. So you put all those together, there are very few attorneys anywhere in America that have that kind of ability, and if you found them, they'd charge $500 an hour. And well, it takes about 40 to 50 hours for a professional to do a comprehensive mortgage examination, a loan transaction examination. People like that do not grow on trees. They are very difficult to find. Now, the borrower can go try to do it himself, but he'd be far better off to hire an expert. Well, Bob, what would your guess be uh, if you, you've been doing this for some time and meeting a lot of different people around the country? Um, would you say there is maybe, what, 5, 10, 20, 100 qualified uh groups or individuals who could do this? Well, I'm going to say to you that I wish there were because it would be easier. I mean, you'd be able to just go to the Yellow Pages and find somebody capable of doing it. But the truth is, all you'll find in the Yellow Pages is foreclosure defense lawyers. You won't find any mortgage attack lawyers. You won't find any mortgage attack specialists. You'll find some loan auditors, but a loan auditor is just redoing calculations on the loan. He's, that's not going to help much. Um, you can find securitization auditors, but securitization is irrelevant to whether the borrower owes the lender a debt and must pay it or forfeit the house. Securitization has absolutely nothing to do with that, and the, and the courts across America have denounced securitization audits as just um, empty gimmickry, that and loan audits. But there's only one person that I have met that has a company, a firm, that will do a confident job of a comprehensive mortgage examination. It takes them about 10 days, 10 business days to do the exam and return the report. And that is a, a company called Mortgage Fraud Examiners out of uh, 
Northern Virginia. They, uh, they, you can go to their website, mortgagefraudexaminers.com, and if you want to have my hand holding involved in the process, I don't have a business arrangement with them, uh, but I know the man personally who runs it. His man named Storm Bradford. He is very talented, very skilled. He knows what he's doing. That is the only person I would trust with such a job. Okay. Um, although you're not a lawyer, you do have a lot of friends in the field. Do you find that lawyers that you know and like um, generally agree with you on your attack approach? I think they'll give it lip service, but when they're pressed they, as to why they didn't go on the attack, they'll say, well, I looked for all the non-trivial injuries I could find. And what that tells me is they don't know what they're looking for. They don't know how to do a mortgage examination. So they don't they're, see the trouble with ignorance. The trouble with ignorance is that a person never knows the extent of it. He just knows there's some things he might not know. He never knows how much he doesn't know. And that's the trouble with most lawyers. They've been to law school. They're allegedly experts in the law. But many of them are profoundly ignorant about all of these different kinds of injuries that can occur. They don't know, for example, how to examine a, an appraisal and determine they could go read the U.S. PAP guidelines. The United, Uniform Standards of Professional Appraisal Practice guidelines are in a 75 to 95 page document that says the USPAP.org. Well, sure, a person can go there and study that. A lawyer could study it, but like most things, it's just like reading the UCC. It's, anybody that tries to read it's going to come away scratching his head, saying, huh? Yeah, it kind of makes sense that the language is sort of arcane. It's difficult to kind of get a picture of what they're talking about a lot of times. It takes being years of being steeped in the application of the Uniform Commercial Code before a person really can become competent at it. And the same thing is true with examining loans and understanding things like uh, the, the professional appraisal practice guidelines. For example, lawyers may not generally know that the U.S. PAP guidelines provide for three methods of appraisal, of valuing property. One is the market value, which everybody knows, and that's the one realtors rely mostly on. The second one is replacement cost, and the third is income capitalization. So most lawyers and people that borrow money don't know that the bank, when they hire an appraiser, when a lender hires an appraiser, he gives them specific orders that has to do only with appraising it and valuing it for his particular kind of interest, which means his potential for getting his money back. Not whether the house is actually worth what it's being sold for, but whether he can get his money back on it. And the, the, general, uh, the general scene is that market value is is sufficient. But suppose that what does the borrower want? If the borrower wants to know that if he bought the house and he was making monthly payments on it, that he'd have enough money coming in if he rented it out to make those monthly mortgage payments. But but what the, what they don't know is that the appraisal industry generally values the income capitalization at 20% less than the market value. Now, that is just utterly crooked in my old book, but it's, it's a practice that is uniform, standard. 
It's a standard practice. If borrowers don't like it, they ought to raise holy hell with the appraisal industry and demand that they change it. Because it's like saying all of these houses are of retail value, but income capitalization would be the wholesale value. And as to replacement costs, it always lags behind market value. When the Fed lowers the interest rate, the value of real estate jumps. Why does it jump? It doesn't really jump because it's worth more. It just jumps because people are eagerly interested in, in, uh, in getting a new loan on the property and refinancing it because it treats the house like an ATM. Am I talking too loudly? No, that's fine. But what I did want to ask you is this. If the only way that you're going to ever know how you were injured is to have a proper evaluation of all the documents and everything that happened at the time of the initiation, um, and you don't think that there are enough lawyers out there competent to work with it, what's the homeowner going to do after they go and they, let's say they invest the money to have that analysis done and now they have it in their hand? Now how do they find a lawyer competent enough to go and use it? Um, well, you can always, uh, a borrower can always call the local county bar association and ask them for a referral to a specialist in contract law litigation and also in tort litigation having to do with uh, injuries related to loan transactions, uh, to appraisals and that sort of thing. Now, normally you'd think that'd be a real estate lawyer, this person is supposed to be a title lawyer, they call it. Um, but it isn't. But you might think it'd be a tort lawyer. That That's mostly looked at as an ambulance chaser. And, you know, somebody that wants to get a personal injury. A personal injury lawyer is somebody who wants medical damages so that they can uh, go after the uh, the injurious party and to pay hospital bills and that and, you know, that sort of thing. But our problem is that there, there really is a gross lack of competent attorneys to take on these cases. Now they should be able to, but the trouble is, if you don't, if you if you bring them a mortgage examination, they're looking at it saying um, the mortgage examination report. They're looking at it saying, okay, I'm going to charge you a thousand dollars just to read this report and try to understand what all it's got in it, because the report is comprehensive. It talks about all the applicable law and the uh, and the particular kinds of injuries and what the, post the possible issues are having to do with this that have been shown uh, possible by court histories, by court cases in the past. And and and, it, and so the lawyer has a lot of reading to do. Well, so does the borrower when he gets his examination report. He's got to go over this and, and sort of transcribe it or let's say paraphrase it into an agreements letter. But the lawyer, he's going to do the same kind of work and paraphrase it into a complaint or counterclaims and cross-claims and affirmative defenses if there's a foreclosure process. Well, it's hard for him to do it. So he's going to charge a 1000 bucks just to read it and try to figure out what it says because he thinks it's going to take him maybe three or four hours to go over it, and they're charging 300 bucks an hour. Uh, this is what I've heard from uh, quite a lot of lawyers. And, uh, it's, and, and that, the borrower looks at it and says, what, I just got through spending five grand on a mortgage examination, um, and you're charging me a 1000 What does that say? If the examiner's team spent 50 hours on an examination and report, and, the, the, and if the lawyer were doing that, 
at $300 an hour, that's $15,000 the lawyer would have charged. He's charging a thousand bucks just to read it and not to do anything with it. So what would he charge then to craft a complaint from it? He's got a lot of digging, a lot of research to do to find all the case law and so forth supporting his his, his injury points here. And uh, so he's got to separate them out into individual counts. It's going to take him some work. He's going to court probably charge five or ten thousand dollars to just to write the complaint. Now, most borrowers, uh, it's difficult enough for most of them to come up with the money to get the mortgage examination. That's why so many of them are fools and go and buy a securitization audit or a loan audit because he can get one of those for like seven, eight hundred thousand, fifteen hundred dollars, two thousand dollars. He most of the time doesn't have, but there are some who have the gall to charge four, five, six, eight thousand dollars for a ridiculous securitization audit that's useless in court. So anyway, uh, and some lawyers have told their clients, well, i got to get a securitization audit here, done here. Well, that's just completely ridiculous. Lawyers like this are completely jealous of the money that the mortgage examiner makes and, and as his fee that he, that he charges or receives. Those lawyers want that fee because why? Because the way they make money is to charge borrowers Five hundred, three hundred, seven fifty, a thousand, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred dollars a month for as long as they can keep them in the house, and then they drag their feet, don't show up at hearings, use cookie cutter pleadings that they've used over and over and over. All they do is change a few details in them, and 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 pretend that they're. That's why I call them foreclosure pretender, defender, Kool Aid drinkers. The Kool-Aid drinkers are the ones who really believe that's the right way to do it, and then the pretender defenders are the ones who only pretend to defend, but they can't defend because there's no defense. If you breach your note, if your note is valid, if your loan transaction is entirely valid, which is the assumption of a court, unless you go in there and prove otherwise, there is no defense, unless, of course, they fail to fulfill some of the conditions precedent to foreclosing, uh, or unless... Uh, they don't have standing. But those, like I said, are easy to fix. And so there's no point trying to defend against something which is easy to fix. All it's going to do is cost you legal fees. And guess what? These banks' lawyers are now starting to charge the legal fees. They have ignored legal fees and just shouldered them for all these decades, last, last decade of foreclosures, 15 years of foreclosures. Now they're starting to hammer the courts into awarding them legal fees to pay their lawyers for having to litigate this ridiculous, nonsensical foreclosure defense case that this foreclosure pretender defender put on. So what I'm saying is there, there, there are slim pickings in the legal community. It's difficult to find a competent attorney, and the last place I would look is a title lawyer, really honestly, who specializes in foreclosure defense or just a foreclosure defense lawyer. That is the last place I'd go. What I would do is I go to Google Scholar and I look up court cases and appellate decisions in my judicial district or circuit, both federal and state, and I would find those kinds of actions that have to do with contract breaches and with tortious conduct uh, related to contracts. Uh, and then find the lawyer who won the case and get that guy on the phone immediately because that guy knows how to win a case. That's all definitely. these foreclosure defenders, all these foreclosure defenders, the only thing they know how to do is lose. Well, that's definitely a different way of going shopping. 
<laughs> Starting with Google Scholar. <laughs> well, Google Scholar has become quite an extensive database of appellate opinions, meaning, okay, you've got your trial court opinions. They've got a, a lot of United States District Court. Those are the trial court opinions. Um, and then a lot of appellate and Supreme Court opinions. They have all of the appellate and Supreme Court opinions, almost. Then they're starting really to populate with uh, appellate opinions from state courts as well. And even um, they are even beginning to have a pretty good array of, of, of regular trial court opinions from the state. But generally what you'll look for is appellate opinions um, because, you know, uh, but, well, I don't. I say that the federal trial court and appellate opinions are worth looking at, and the state appellate opinions are very worth looking at. Because um, the truth is, remember, Judge Shack in New York, who just died recently, he had like a claim to fame of dismissing a dozen or so, uh, sixteen. I don't know, twelve or sixteen. Uh, foreclosure cases uh, because of not having the documents in order and so forth. So he got, he became famous across America for that, and everybody's, hey, that's what we need to do, go fight those damn foreclosures. Well, Judge Shacks, every one of those cases was overturned on appeal, or the lender came back, corrected his errors, it came back, refiled, and won. Every one of them. Same with Judge Boyko in Ohio. All of those cases, they bought the lender, the uh, creditor came back and won them. So what does that prove? It proves it was a waste of time. That's foreclosure pretense defense and action. Yeah, they got temporary dismissals, and they were blowing their horn over it. I'm, I'm great. I'm magnificent. Look how much I won. You didn't win anything. Those were dismissals with, without prejudice, and uh, there were no legal fees awarded for, for that. I mean, there might have been. Maybe the lawyers asked for fees, but usually they don't even, you know, the, the court says, no, nope, it was a legitimate issue uh, to bring up, and they just need to correct their paperwork. So anyway, I guess my point here is to say that uh, you, it's very difficult. We have a serious problem in America right now with foreclosure pretender defenders. There's some of them that are focused on blogging, and these guys are charlatans who belong in prison. They need to be have their bar licenses yanked from them because what they are doing is they are basically lying to people and telling them that they ought to go forward with these foreclosure pretense defense actions without having a solid foundation for them. I know of one one well known blogger who attorney who says, "Yeah." Uh, every borrower should immediately file a notice of rescission, no matter what. Well, as I told you, if you file a, a notice of rescission, it's going to, I didn't tell you this yet, but it's going to be followed by litigation. Because if the borrower doesn't litigate it, what's going to happen is the lender is, the borrower is going to stop making payments. Because if he doesn't stop making payments, he basically waives his rescission. And what happens when he rescinds is the lender is going to look at it and say, mm, uh, Am I going to uh, go for this rescission? If it's a TILA rescission for not getting his, uh, the proper disclosures, the lender may have an, a form, an acknowledgement that the borrower signed saying, hey, I did get the disclosure of my right to cancel a loan. 
So that means that there's no deal of rescission available to that borrower. If the borrower sent him a notice of rescission and insists on re- the rescission, now the lender or the creditor, he's got to tender the payment back to the borrower of everything the borrower gave him. But then when he does that, the borrower has to tender it back too. And by the way, deal of rescission, the law clearly states, is not available for purchase money loans. So what is this lawyer doing when he tells people to go out, buy my rescission package, and then go out and, and, and file a notice of rescission and get after it and push these guys? What he's doing is leading them into the harm's way because if they do this and there's no valid rescission, rescission available for a purchase money loan and the borrower has a purchase money loan, he's going to end up uh, going into foreclosure because he's going to stop making his payments and he's going to be following the the strategy of this bogus bozo uh, who, who pretends he's a legal expert, and that strategy is going to cause him to lose in court, and he's going to have to pay the attorney fees for his opponent, for the creditor. Final. So it's, or he's going to lose his house, all because he relied upon that bad advice. Okay. Now, Bob, before we uh, jump off for a break, cause, uh, I want to give you a chance to uh, wet your whistle, and uh, we can come back. But I was going to ask you, uh, can we apply this stuff, uh, your research, your observations, to other practical matters like uh, other kinds of consumer debt, like credit cards or auto loans or student loans? Does it well, work these same principles apply to every kind of a debt. Uh, I'm saying, uh, and any and any debt of any kind, of a loan transaction of any kind, there's a chance the borrower got hoodwinked, or there's a chance that the borrower lied and deceived the lender and said that he qualified for a loan when he didn't. So a lot of borrowers have committed bank fraud. And I, and I, I, if I were such a borrower, I wouldn't want to go jump in the face of the lender and say, hey, you guys screwed me over because, uh, hey, that, I could put myself at risk for being go, of going to prison. I can sure name several people um, <clears throat> who have gone to prison for bank fraud for falsifying loan applications. It's, a, it's, an, it's a not a very bright thing to do, and that's why I said from the outset, live ethically. Don't go put yourself in harm's way, and don't do things that break the law, because you're just putting yourself in, in a, in a, to a position of get, getting punished. And, and also, you don't have the ethical upper hand when you do that. Um, you want to be in good faith in all your transactions. So... But uh, it's a little late for that. We've got, you know, 10 years or 15 years of all kinds of crookedness on both sides, both the borrower and the lenders being crooked. And here's what I have to say about it. If, if a lender injures a borrower, he is the sophisticated investor. The borrower is not a sophisticated investor. A lot of t- times people borrow money to buy a house so that he can flip it. That makes the house an investment. And But he is not sophisticated. The one that is, is a guy who's in this for a business, and I mean for his whole total profession. Those people are sophisticated lenders. They know everything they're doing. They have it worked out from A to Z, exactly how they're going to make money. And the borrower is not privy to any of this. He doesn't know any of that. So I look at it as, as the moral obligation of lenders is senior to the moral obligation of borrowers yeah, borrowers should, should do right, should not breach their loans. But if the borrower breaches it, it's critically important whether the lender breached it first. 
And that's why it's important to scrutinize every loan transaction before signing those papers. All right, Bob. Uh, I hope that helps the folks understand where you're coming from better. Are you ready to take uh, some questions? Sure. Okay, great. Let's take a short two-minute break and let everybody gather up their thoughts and get some refreshments. And we will be right back with the question and answer portion of the show here on the Gallant Goose in France with our guest, author, blogger, researcher, and consumer advocate, Mr. Bob Hurt. Welcome to the Gallant Goose and Friends, a weekly production of the Gallant Goose Radio Network airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 645 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139-335. This is your MC and musical tour guide, Big Papa Stanley, reminding y'all when it comes to saving your house, don't let the bank of blues stop you from getting all your clues. The primary focus of this interactive program is to discuss mortgage foreclosure defense and attack strategies and related homeowner issues with our guests and callers. We come to you from the birthplace of the American Bar Association and the home of Abraham Lincoln, Al Capone, the Untouchables, and Operation Greylord, where the motto is vote early, vote often, and according to some politicians, even when you're dead. Here you'll find general information about home loans and ownership, notes and mortgages, as well as pointers on lenders, banks, funding, securitization, regulations, titles, credit damage, and more, plus different forms of resolution when things go wrong between homeowners and lenders, including RESPA, FDCPA, and TILA rescission. With the help of our guests, We'll try and find general answers to your questions on these and other popular topics. Now please remember, this program is for general information only. No official advice regarding accounting, law, taxes, or other regulated services given here. If you need a lawyer or accountant, please hire one authorized to work in your state. Thank you all for being here tonight. Let's try and help each other. Uh, welcome back, everybody, to the show. If you're just tuning in, we are here with our guest, uh, blogger, author, researcher, and consumer advocate, Mr. Bob Hurt. And as a reminder to our callers, to ask a question, please press star 8 on your phone and raise your hand, and you'll be placed in the queue. And when you're unmuted, please say your name, where you're calling from, and what your question is. If you have a noisy background, after you've been unmuted and you're done asking your question, you can always toggle the mute by pressing star 6 on your phone. And with that, let's uh, take a look and see who would like to ask a question first. Well, let's see. We had a typed-in question here when we were speaking earlier, and that was, did Storm have anything to do with the Brown versus Quicken? No, no I, this is a good question, and I get it all the time. Wanted to know, well, where's the proof that what you do works? 
Um, the proof is in the course of cases like Brown versus Quicken Loans. The concept here is let us take a look and find what methodology works. We already know from years and years and years of litigation that when a person gets injured, he doesn't get into a fist fight if he's smart. Instead, he will sue a person for injuring him and try to get the court to award him damages or at least order the person to stop hurting him. Okay? This is exactly all we're talking about here. This is a very sound, proven methodology. And I only used, for example, the Brown versus Quicken Loans case as the poster child for the methodology. It doesn't matter who uses the methodology. Um, my big point in talking about um, that case is to demonstrate that it makes more sense to attack those who injured the borrower because that's the only way the borrower is going to come out with a free house or with a reduction in the amount of money that he owes on this debt because or a loan modification that's to his advantage because the, the creditor would prefer to settle with him uh, than to have to pay him damages. And uh, he's going to end up having to pay damages if the borrower sues him and can prove the injuries. So this is not a rocket science thing. This is something that's been around for thousands of years, people attacking people through a legal mechanism rather than going to battle and fighting with sticks and stones and guns and broken beer bottles. So the question here that should matter most is can I find an attorney? Uh, first of all, can I find somebody who helped me dig up all of the causes of action, all the reasons to sue, to go to battle in court against whoever it was that hurt me in this loan transaction? Okay, here you're faced with this. You can't make your mortgage payments. Uh, but you can uh, you can scratch together enough money to get a, loan, a mortgage exam. If you can't make your loan payments, do you know you're going to lose your house? There's no way you're not going to lose it unless you can prove to the judge, uh, either by suing for declaratory judgment in case of things like keel rescission or just suing for, for injuries in a tort or contract breach lawsuit, or mounting counterclaims and cross-claims and affirmative defenses in an existing foreclosure lawsuit. Can you give the court enough to get the court to rule in your favor and reduce the amount of money that you owe on that debt possibly to zero? And if the opponent, the lender, the creditor, if he knows that you have a good chance of winning, will he say, excuse me, George, what can I do to make this problem go away? What will it take to make you happy? You could say, well, tell you what, why don't you reduce my loan balance to the value of the house today, plus give me credit for my paid-in equity, which you have, your, your banking industry has robbed me of, plus lower the interest rate to 3%, make it a fixed interest rate, and restart the loan for 30 years. And by the way, let's make the loan assumable. And by the way, I need a new roof, so how about 25000 to pay for my roof. Now the, letter, the creditor is going to look at that and he's going to think to himself, Am I, is this going to cost me more money or will I save money in, in the long run by going this route? Chances are he'll accept the, he'll do the, uh, the deal. He will 
opt not to go to court because he knows if he does, he'll lose. And that, God knows what a jury will award him, uh, what will award the borrower as punitive and compensatory damages for the injury. So it depends on the extent of the injuries. The Lori Brown case, you say, did Storm do that? No, he didn't. But what that proves is that some injuries are so egregious that the courts will bend over backwards to punish the lender, the creditor, the, the appraiser, whoever hurt him. They will punish them very badly. And what does the borrower end up with? Enough money to, to buy several houses. So can you get your house free and clear? Oh, yeah. But what's it take to get it? Well, the Brown versus Quicken Loans case drug out for three and a half years. <laughs> I mean, that's a long time to wait to try to get your money, but she wasn't making any payments during that time. I mean, nobody makes mortgage payments during litigation except for, for you know, uh, well, somebody that just, you know, wants to pick a fight. I had a, I had a case of a guy the other day. I saw his case documents in Florida who... His name is Mass Lenka, and he hired a known foreclosure pretender defender to, to launch a lawsuit or to carry on a lawsuit against the loan originator and the current creditor to whom the originator had sold the loan. Um, he started off by trying to get his house clear, free and clear by writing paid in full on the check, his mortgage payment check, and then... His plan was, well, if they sign this, that's offer and accord and offer and acceptance. And so guess what? Now I don't owe them any money, more money. Of course, he didn't stop to think that, they, that the, the creditor might look at it and say, yeah, uh, this, this particular payment, uh, this monthly payment here is paid in full. But the whole debt, no. Uh, nevertheless, it just doesn't work. But he was delusionally thinking that it would. And that was how he was going to get his house free and clear. Well... He had found out pretty soon that he was barking up the wrong tree. So he went and hired this foreclosure pretender defender, and this guy lodged every crazy, ridiculous, frivolous, nonsensical uh, complaint or whatever issue in the complaint uh, that you can imagine. It is completely laughable. And this person is a t an attorney who did this. So what did the guy do? He, 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 he filed... The, the, the second amended complaint, third amended complaint, fourth amended complaint, fifth amended complaint, each one of them got dismissed. Finally, the fifth one got dismissed with prejudice. The guy appealed it, Maslanka appealed it, and the appellate court procured him affirmed the defense, the, uh, the dismissals, which means they didn't even want to offer a comment on it because the court had commented adequately on it already in the other dismissals. Uh, the point is, that how could somebody in a good conscience uh, run these the lender, the creditor, through the grinder uh, in these frivolous lawsuits four times, uh, knowing that they're going to lose? Certainly, he must have known he was going to lose. Well, what happened is the appellate court ordered the uh, Maslanka to pay unconditional legal fees to the creditor and the loan originator. That could mount... To over $100,000. So I asked Maslanka the other day, I said, hey, tell me, um, how much is your house worth? He said about 150000 uh, $150,000. I said, well, so how much do you owe on it? He says about 75000 I said, if they if they hit you with $100,000 in legal fees, which is highly, entirely likely, 
you know, you you couldn't even sell, sell uh, pay it if you sold your house, and uh, you know, and took the extra money to cover that debt. You still owe him money. He says, "Yeah, but I've decided I'm going to go bankrupt." But this guy is in a terrible mental state. You know, his wife is upset with him for being such an idiot. He's gone through all of this trouble uh, simply to try to get his house free and clear. And in a house that he knew he didn't deserve to have free and clear. He was going to flim flame the bank. That's why I tell save people, keep yourself out of harm's way. Keep your ethics straight and honest. Don't do unethical stuff. Don't try to get something for nothing because it's crooked. And, and, and so now when you ask me, go back to the question. Was this storm do this? No, storm didn't do it. But storm does, finds exactly all of the causes of action that make it possible for somebody to get the very outcome that happened in the Brown versus Quicken Loans case. I have well, seen, I've seen uh, dozens of his uh, mortgage examination reports. They're confidential, but people ask me to help them sometimes with their grievance letters, which I'm glad to do, um, because uh, they're, they're somehow they feel overwhelmed with the prospect of writing it themselves sometimes. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. let's, uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna clock out on the, our time here, so let's uh, bounce around a couple other things if you don't mind. Um, I think that uh, you, you made yourself pretty clear on that. Um, one of the things that I find interesting, just in terms of the uh, court of uh, public opinion, is I think that you would agree that uh, a lot of people have painted you as somebody who hates Taylor rescission and thinks it's stupid. However, if someone were to take a visit over to your website on your blog, you've got one on there that says, courts love Teeler rescission, if you can demonstrate that you know what you're doing. And uh, I think you told me that, too. So explain to folks briefly why you might get into an argument about Teeler rescission with some people, but it's not about whether or not it's a good or bad thing, but it's rather how you use it. Yeah, the law... Uh, Congress uh, passed the Truth in Lending Act to prevent scenarios where people put their family home at risk by taking out a loan uh, by, through a refinance or a, a credit line of credit uh, because they want to make sure that people have had a chance adequately to shop around for the best loan bargain they can get and not put their family home at, unduly at risk so they require disclosures of the right to cancel the loan, and uh, if they if they that disclosure if the lender doesn't give that disclosure out uh, early in the loan, like immediately at closing, then uh, and, and even at closing it's a three day right to cancel, but it's a right to rescind the loan extends to three years if they never gave them those disclosures. So there's a possibility they'll go looking through their file and, you know, a couple of years later and see that and say, hey, they never gave me any disclosures, and then go back and sue them for it. Okay, well, the, the law requires that a person uh, in that situation file uh, send the lender or the creditor, whoever he is, a notice of rescission uh, stating that he uh, failed to get the disclosures, and then the creditor has 20 days within which to respond and either tender payment and cancel the, the lien uh, off the loan. But then um, 
then if he doesn't do it, the the borrower can just sue him for it. Okay. So under TILA, the borrower can sue him within a year after having sent the rescission notice, and he doesn't have to send that notice to them any earlier than at the third year mark, that the final day of the third year. So if he sends that notice within that period of time, then he has one year in which to sue uh, to punish the lender for not tendering. And that could give him up to $4,000 um, and all of his legal fees paid, plus his court costs, uh, I mean, uh, uh, his actual damages, if there was any. Now, how could there be actual damage? Well, the, um, the borrower might have drugged this thing out. The lender could have tendered right away, but instead he didn't tender. And so what happened in the meanwhile is that the borrower uh, uh, sees his home value deteriorating, uh, going down in the market, such as happened uh, during the financial crisis, and it may drop, you know, seventy-five or a hundred thousand dollars in value. Uh, could drop as much as thirty percent, forty percent. Well, if that happens, there's no way the borrower can sell a house in order to get the money to pay the lender back, because the borrower and the lender both must tender in order to effect a rescission, in order to consummate a rescission. So, um, if the borrower ends up getting screwed to the tune of a hundred grand. Well, that's his injury. That's his actual real damage. And so if he sues the lender for this damages, uh, he can collect big time. Let me tell you what would happen. If he collected that kind of money, that could remove his arrearage. In other words, that could bring his loan current. And bringing his loan current would put him back in good graces with the bank, and, and he could just continue making his mortgage payments. No, that is a wonderful way to go. So what does that say? That says that TILA rescission is a good thing. And and it, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, but it has to be used artfully. Like everything, when it comes to defending your rights, you have to do it artfully, and you have to do it timely. There is a statute of repose that gives three years to send a notice of rescission. If you send it after in three years and one day, you're not going to get your rescission. There's no possibility the court will do anything about it. Then there's a requirement to file suit within one year. Not only that, if you get sued for foreclosure um, and you raise as an affirmative defense uh, the TILA rescission, well, uh, you better do that within a year after the filing of the foreclosure notice. Because if you don't, um, you waive your right. So your rights get waived by sleeping on them. And you don't want to sleep on your rights. So if if somebody that says, suggests to you, look, even if you have a purchase money loan, uh, you should sue. Or if he says, uh, you should send a notice of rescission. Well, that is idiotic. That could set a borrower up to have all kinds of trouble and have to go through a lot of expense. That would be a stupid use of, the, of TILA because TILA doesn't permit it. If you said, if somebody told the borrower, I'll tell you what, this lender has to sue you. He's got 20 days after you send him a notice of rescission to rescind. But if he doesn't do it, he has to sue you. <clears throat> well, no, he doesn't. The law doesn't say that. But if, a, if, a, if a, some lawyer suggests that you do have to sue him, he's, he's a fool and he's misleading you. He could be putting you in serious jeopardy by following that advice. And uh, that is why I say that a misuse or an abuse of the Truth in Lending Act uh, leads people to all kinds of difficulties that could cost them enormous legal fees, 
make them lose their house when they shouldn't have. In other words, they may have been able to make their payments, but they stopped making payments because they, they and that's part of the rescission thing, you know. So I, I'm, I'm saying that if you do it artfully, then you will properly file your causes of action, timely file your lawsuit, timely prior to that give notice of rescission, make sure the notice of rescission is complete and that it is correct and accurate and it's done timely. And if you do all these things, you can come out doing well. Now, I know one guy who did a, such an excellent job, the judge praised him for the way he, he did his complaint, uh, his TILA complaint or his TILA rescission complaint, and then it turned out that the lender was in bankruptcy and couldn't tender. Well, what happens if the lender can't tender is it just goes into limbo. The whole thing just comes to a screeching halt pending the lender coming out of limbo, so out of out of foreclosure, I mean, excuse me, bankruptcy, so that he can now tender. Well, meanwhile, is the borrower making payments? Nope. Does he have to make payments? Nope. Is interest accruing on the loan? No. So he's making out like a bandit, living there for years and years without making any mortgage payments, and there are, there's no interest accrual. So he's getting he's living in his place rent free. I think that's pretty wonderful, and that that shows a consummate knowledge of and use of the law uh, on his own behalf. And the person who did that, he happens to be a very good friend of mine, and I've provided uh, um, links to his case documents where you can read the opinions, not the case documents so much, but the opinion in the uh, in the court. I put it up on mortgageattack.com. You have to dig for it. I'm not going to tell you who it is, whose case it is. You're going to have to dig. So get on mortgageattack.com, read those blog entries, because it's in there, and you'll find a number of blog entries that show you court cases where people won quarter of a million and 400000 and various other amounts of money in, in settlements or in, in damages award in court for properly using the mortgage attack methodology. Well, that's good to know. Hey, uh, having spent nine years in submarines, you certainly know what it feels like to be underwater, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, what advice can you give to our average homeowner that is still underwater from this whole, you know, collapse of the artificial value? Um, what do you well, What do you think the best thing to do, is, especially if they're not in trouble already or they're just starting to get in trouble? Would you repeat that question? Um, what do you think good advice would be for homeowners whose houses are underwater with regard to the value of their note versus their loans and, their, and the value on the house today after everything is deflated, right? Which is what we mean when we say underwater. Well, I'd say the first thing to do is go get your mortgage examined because if your loan is underwater, uh, there's a big chance it was overvalued at the appraisal. Um, and if it was overvalued, then that's appraisal fraud, and the appraisal fraud can get you punitive damages that will be enough to pay off your house. So get your mortgage examined. Call me, 727-669-5511. Go to mortgageattack.com and fill in my little contact form. I will help you. I'll give you uh, assistance and help you figure everything out and get you going on the process and save you a lot of worry and fretting. Uh, now, I don't charge money for what I do. I'm free. And I do this as a public service because, number one, I know how to do it. 
And number two, um, it does, I, I'm able to live within my means, and I don't have to earn money from it. So it's, uh, it's one of those things that is my pleasure to do it during my old age, my retirement, and that sort of thing. So uh, go to mortgageattack.com and pick up the phone and call me, 727-669-5511, and I'll help you to the extent that I can. I'm not a lawyer. I don't give legal advice, but I do give business advice. And uh, for the business of saving your home, that's what I'm all about. So uh, when you say what other advice would you have um, besides getting the mortgage examined, uh, the reason you would get your mortgage examined so if you can't, so you can go to the lender and try to get a loan mod that will knock your loan balance down to a value that you can afford and then refinance it or re reset the loan. Now, if you can do that, then you can sell a house. My also advice is, okay, do everything you possibly can to bring that house value up. Get out there and landscape the front yard, slap a coat of paint on the outside, get the wood fixed, uh, you know, repair your drapes and your carpet. Because most people in this situation let their homes go into decline. First of all, that's a breach of your contract, and they can foreclose on you just for that. But um, make sure that you're, you work with your servicer properly, and you don't let your servicer get away with shenanigans. If he tries to force place insurance on you, you get up his back end with a blowtorch and make him uh, use the proper insurance. If he doesn't, just file a rest of a lawsuit against him. And um, go find you a lawyer that'll, that's uh, competent in rest of litigation and attack. Go on the attack. Uh, but, but the reason you're doing that is to forestall and to prevent a foreclosure and to prevent your, because what will happen is, these guys do this stuff a lot. They will fail to escrow enough money, uh, to, in other words, to set aside enough money in your house payment to, to pay the taxes and insurance every year when they come due. And then sometimes they do it by expecting the borrower to, to, to pay the taxes insurance. The borrower thinks the, the, the servicer is doing it. So you have to be real careful to make sure you know that they know they have to cover the taxes insurance and they have to take enough money in the house payment they have to set it at a value high enough to escrow the sufficient amount of money. Because when you get behind in your escrow fund, all of the money you apply to a house payment is going to satisfy the escrow first. That'll make you short in your payment. If you're short one penny or for one minute, they can foreclose on you. They don't have to have a grace period. They don't have to give you any grace at all. When you breach that note, they can foreclose, and if they think it's to their advantage to do so, they'll do so. And one good way to do it is with an underwater, uh, if, if you're not making a, a payments on an underwater loan, um, they may be able to get a great big write-off, insurance write-off for it, uh, foreclosing and, not, and having to take the property over, because there's no way they're going to let a property like that get sold at auction. Another thing you could do is try to negotiate with them to do a short sale, to allow you to do a short sale. Get out from under that debt. Ask them to forgive the balance, the, the deficiency, and not to a 1099. Well, how are you going to negotiate with a bank not to send a 1099 to the IRS saying that they forgave you a whole bunch of money? Now you're going to have to pay taxes on that money. Well, negotiate from a position of strength. I look at it that the lender is like a werewolf. He's chained to the table and he can't eat you yet, but he wants to eat you. So you can't shoot him with a regular gun, which is like litigation, normal litigation, foreclosure defense. You have to put silver bullets in that gun and shoot him with those. 
Now, if he knows you're loading the gun with silver bullets, he knows what's going to happen next, so he'll settle with you. You have to get his testicles in your hand and start squeezing real hard. Then he knows he's going to have to give you some kind of a deal to make you back off. If you don't negotiate from strength, you're, you're not going to get what you want. So the only way to negotiate from strength is to prove that they injured you. Get your mortgage examined. And that way, you'll have an opportunity to beat them up, to prove that they injured you, and then to go in there and force them to do a loan modification that's to your benefit instead of theirs. That's, right. the, that's how you deal with it. Hey, Bob, uh, let's uh, ask everybody on the on the call once again, if you would like to uh, ask Bob a question, please press star 8 on your phone. Um, we're getting close to the end of the show here. And... Uh, Appreciate y'all being here, but uh, in case you're, in case you folks out there are pondering a thought, and uh, don't be embarrassed. There are no such thing as stupid questions. You have ridiculous answers. <laughs> so, um, just give her. Um, while we're waiting, uh, I'll point out another thing about the mortgage examination reports. They are confidential. And uh, most of the borrowers do not want their information leaked. So I don't talk about them, and neither does the examiner. And uh, we, they don't want it leaked because it makes them look bad sometimes. Uh, it, it indicates that they may have had some kind of a trouble. Um, we recommend that they never show that examination report to anybody but their attorney and uh, because it could have incriminating information in it that they don't want anybody else to know. So uh, because not all the borrowers are, you know, really white, so to speak, some of them are kind of like uh, they've done a few shady things that show up in the report. And I'm going to tell you, the examiner, he finds everything. There is no way to hide stuff from him. Uh, and if he can find it, that means a diligent team for the lender could find it. So... And you need to be apprised of these things before you mount an attack. You need to know exactly where your weaknesses are as well as your strengths. And he finds all of them. So That's we think this highly confidential and uh, don't divulge this stuff. That's why we can't tell you about people who've settled out of court, because they are bound by confidentiality agreements, and they can't tell us. Some lawyers and some homeowners accuse judges of reading too much into certain decisions or statutes, presuming more discretion than the law might allow, right? What about the other way around where foreclosure gurus are reading more into case law or appellate rulings or statutes than actually there? Um, do you see that being a problem? Well, I think that the foreclosure defense industry has intentionally... Um, overinflated the value or tried to overinflate the value of their efforts to defend against foreclosure, uh, and they overinflate it because that's all they have. They know the borrower can't afford a mortgage examination and couldn't afford to pay them to do the kind of in-depth stuff they have to do to litigate properly because hardcore litigation costs a lot of money. And it takes a lot of effort and time, and it's a strain. These guys that are foreclosure defenders do this because they know they can handle 200 clients simultaneously with cookie-cutter pleadings just doing their normal humdrum foreclosure defense that doesn't really accomplish anything. And 
And so they know that a, a lawyer who's doing a good job can only handle five active cases at one time. Well, that means that in order for them to do that, they're going to have to make their money off of those five cases. It's easier to make their money by charging 500 to to $1,000 a month off of 200 cases simultaneously than it is to make the money off of five cases because he really has to work for those, whereas with the cookie cutters, he just gets his office staff to do the work, most of it, and go down and file the pleadings and so forth. So they definitely overinflate the value of the, the points, and in fact, what they do is they use a lot of bogus legal theories uh, that courts have already ruled against repeatedly. They do that until they get threatened with sanctions for doing them. As long as they can get away with it and get the borrower to think they're doing something, they'll do it. Bob, we have, so, uh, so, we have a caller from Illinois that has a question. Go ahead, Illinois. Uh, what's your name and what's your question, please? Uh, yeah, Bob. This is, uh, this is Bob Locke from Chicago. How are you? Fabulous. Hey, um, I've got a question. You know, one of the one of the biggest um, one of the biggest challenges that I think homeowners face, and I see it in, in appellate court decisions time and time and time again, it, it's two things. And one one relates to you, and one doesn't. One is, um, but both go to both go to evidence and proof. Uh, you know, one is that the the homeowners when they go on appeal, they never took the time to have a court reporter in the courtroom for critical hearings on motions and pleadings and things like that. And so the only record that the appellate court has is is pieces of paper, all right? And, and that one doesn't relate to you. The second thing that appellate courts I see around the country lament is there are never any counter affidavits um, that are, that are uh, filed and placed into evidence by the homeowner, uh, either to support affirmative defenses or counterclaims uh, of any sort. And the biggest problem that homeowners face is a dearth of witnesses that are willing to come in and, um, and testify and provide actual evidence to counter the bank's claims, which we, you know, I think, and I got into the call late, so if you've already covered this, accept my apologies. I, I, um, but it's something that has always nagged at me. And, um, you know, years ago when, when I dealt with Storm, um, he did not provide affidavits. He provided the reports, which are great, but you know, the problem is that the homeowner's not going to testify to the report because they didn't prepare the report and they don't have knowledge and they don't have the expertise to be able to support an evidentiary affidavit or affidavit of fact with respect to the claims. And so are you or Storm or somebody else now offering um, affidavits that can be put into evidence to support a, a, an affirmative claim or a counterclaim or to support defenses in tort against the bank's claims? Um, well, that is a fabulous question. That's a wonderful question. I really like it because you're pointing to something that's sticky. Uh, here's, what you, here's what the issue is. First of all, you said affidavit. Okay, that means you would want the examiner to function as an expert witness. Yes. What the examiner does is he shows uh, where the documents themselves become the evidence of the crookedness. And so... Uh, you can take those documents and put them up on the desk of the judge, and you don't need an expert witness for the judge to understand them. 
However, in the case of, say, uh, an, an overvaluation of the property by the appraiser, uh, that you're going to need to go hire a local appraiser to do an appraisal review or retrospective review uh, of the valuation of that property. Uh, and that retrospective review will end up showing the amount of damage that the borrower suffered as a consequence of overvaluing the property, or in the case of a loan mod, of undervaluing. Now, that becomes expert witness testimony, of course, and that satisfies your need for the affidavit. But the, uh, the third and the most important thing is a lesson you can learn from the state of Florida. The Supreme Court has required verified complaints in every foreclosure case. A verified complaint becomes, is treated as, as testimony and as witness testimony. And in order to counteract this, the opposing counsel must, therefore, testify in order to prove, to prove that it's wrong. So it's, it's a dirty trick, but that's the trick you use. The, ex, the, the examiner doesn't need to be there as an expert witness. You don't need an expert witness when you're putting the testimony or, or an affidavit because the judge can see the the injuries with his own eyes. And in the case of stuff that you need an expert witness for, which the only thing I know of for a fact uh, is for appraisal issues, um, the judge cannot, is not an expert in appraisal, doesn't know how to figure out whether the appraisal is a flim-flam or not. But the retrospective review by a professional appraiser definitely would uh, prove it to it. So... Your, your, the secret to your success is in a verified complaint because that forces, of course, you must artfully do this. That forces your opponent uh, to, to treat it as testimony, and the only way you can counteract it is by putting witnesses on the witness stand. And he often doesn't have witnesses to do that with. Well, but... But okay, so I'm thinking about Illinois. As a, you know, Illinois, it's a it's a judicial state, but you know, as we know, there are no trials. It's just it's a, it's a paper process that results in in summary judgment, and um, and and so if I'm going to you know talk to somebody about getting you know documents into the record that are outside of the documents that the that the bank has put in or the servicer has put in as part of their complaint. And and by the way, I agree with you about the verification. You know, I mean, you know, the 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 most intelligent thing to do, the banks always file non-verified complaints and, you know, I have always counseled filing verified answers and and then, you know, attaching whatever documentation that you have that can expose the weaknesses in their case. But um but the you know the court doesn't the, the the court is is sitting in equity and they have the ability to be able to um, use their discretion to give various levels of weight to the different documents that are put into the record and so uh, going back to what I said before you know the the the, the appellate court consistently laments about the fact that there are no counter affidavits now you're absolutely right with respect to the with respect to the appraisal fraud, 
having an appraiser do that. I think you could do that for a very reasonable amount of money. There are appraisers out there that are good, that understand the issues, and, and they won't charge a homeowner a significant amount in order to do that. But for the tortious claims that um, that I remember seeing Storm address in, in his examinations, there's there's a I mean when you're alleging the tort, then you know you're you're getting into things whether you're talking about intentional or negligent or otherwise, you're getting into a a level of complexity that obviously the bank's not going to be able to or if the bank called the homeowner, the homeowner's not going to be able to testify to it. The attorney is not going to be able to testify to it because they're there as counsel. They're not going to be oh, able no, to testify. I the, the attorney definitely should do it through a verified counterclaim or cross-claim because if it's a tort, then there's going to be a counter or cross-claim, not merely an affirmative defense. And that that counterclaim and cross-claim needs to be verified. And when it is, if it functions as testimony, they have to counteract it or, you know, they can only defeat it with testimony. So you're saying that you're saying that the the tortious claims that that you're suggesting be raised as a result of of the examination don't require a witness to testify in order to be successful. If the documents show it, no. But sometimes they might. For example, um, but how are you going to how are you going to get the documents into the record? Who's going to sponsor the documents into the record? Well, they're already part of the case file. They're either, they're, the documents are either already in a case file because they're court records, uh, bankruptcy, forbearance, it could be a contract, forbearance agreement, or the note, the, any of the documents that we're closing, or the, the mortgage application, or the appraisal. All of these things are already part of the case file. Well, the only thing that the only thing that's going to be in a foreclosure is going to be the the note, the mortgage, and a, and you know a hokey copy of 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 a payment record that they print out of their computer. So, if you, uh, how would you normally? Uh, well, let's just say the borrower is going to come forward and have this trove of documents that uh, that he has provided to the examiner for examination. Part of that's going to be the appraisal. Yeah, I'll just put him on a witness stand. Where'd you get this? Where's he, what's he going to say? Well, I got it from the, the title company. They're the ones who gave me this copy of this. And you get the title company on the stand. Uh, where did you get this? Well, we got it from the appraiser. So, okay, but but why is it a normal chain of evidence? But why is it that the examiner isn't coming in as an expert witness? Because He's the one he who's gone through all the documents. He, he has no firsthand knowledge. But he's the one that examined the do documents and, and identified all of the fraud and the torts. Uh, actually, the whole point of the examination is to provide the path to the evidence so that the a borrower himself can point it out to the judge from the documents already part of the case file, or if not, can easily be admitted into evidence. It's not difficult to get the appraisal admitted, the loan application admitted, or any... Uh, uh, there, there are things where, where you need to have a witness up there, but that's just part of a lawyer's job. Like, for example, if there was a bait-and-switch tactic, um, how do you know there was a bait-and-switch 
well, there's a mortgage broker. He's going to have to answer some embarrassing questions on the stand. Now, maybe you can't get him. Oh, yeah, I think you can unless he died. But even so, who's culpable for what the mortgage broker does? The underwriter. So you have your availability of witnesses to put him uh, to get up on the stand. Now, let me uh, suggest, and, and I'd like to encourage this, that you should feel free to call me, and we'll go over any specific issues. And if necessary, I'll get the examiner on the phone. We can hash some things out and maybe uh, find a path to new information and new new opportunities. Because if you're suggesting, and I do know that's what you do suggest, that uh, let me let me just simply say what what the court said in one case. I think it was Matsuka or one of those cases. I wrote a little commentary on it. Uh, there's a guy named Richard Kahn who provided his securitization and loan audit type stuff to the court, and then he backed it up with his affidavit. And what did the court say? They said it's nothing but empty gimmickry. So there's, there is a, a merit to that point, which is, if the, the affidavit doesn't do any good whatsoever, if it's just trying to blow somebody's horn, and the person has to have firsthand knowledge of that to which he testifies in an affidavit. And in Storm Bradford, the mortgage examiners don't have that firsthand knowledge. They have firsthand knowledge. They looked at the documents and found these things. But once he finds them and points them out, the borrower can show them to the judge. Now the borrower does have firsthand knowledge. All right, um, Illinois had to go. The uh, I think it was a problem on the phone line there. It was getting all noisy. Uh, yeah, but I think I hear what you're saying. Uh, in other words, if the mortgage, mortgage examiner tried to testify, it would be the same silliness as when the bank brings in all these people who are in their 20s and just got out of college and have absolutely no idea about what happened on a, a mortgage you know, well, they were still in college and they weren't working there, but they're testifying that they know that these things are true. When they're testifying, really, that they read a piece of paper. All I can testify to is that this is the policy or the procedure they follow and that he's been following it and whatever. But when an examiner does it, like the whole purpose of affidavits is to state firsthand knowledge under penalties of perjury so that it can be relied upon. And uh, they... The affidavit still has to be testified to in court. Right. So, you know, I, there's no point for the examiner to try to write some kind of affidavit. You know, it, it, it kind of shows a misunderstanding of, of affidavits to suggest that the examiner ought to be submitting one to the court. But like uh, the court has said about these things, they're empty gimmickry. You don't have firsthand knowledge of this stuff. Um, and who does have it is the borrower and the lender, you know, the people that were involved in the transaction. That's who you get on the witness stand. That's who needs to write an affidavit. And the way you write an affidavit is with a verified complaint or verified counter complaint or cross complaint. All right. Well, Bob, looking at the clock, I think that's all the time we have tonight. Um, I want to thank you and tell you that you've been great, you've been really helpful, and, uh, Open and forthcoming with your thoughts and ideas. Oh, well, it's uh, been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Anytime you need somebody to fill up a little space, give me a call. Oh, it's more than just filling up space, but thank you. Um, 
I'm just joking. I'm, I'm, I I appreciate the opportunity to help people understand these issues. And I want you to know that I remain available um, because I don't work for a living. I guess you could say I'm preoccupied by by helping borrowers understand their circumstances, and I'll talk with lawyers and any kind of service providers in the industry. If people have a difficulty or trouble with this, they can call me, and I'll share my business experience with them. Okay, and once again, before we go, so everybody gets it, uh, your website is what again? MortgageAttack.com, and the phone number is 727-669-5511. All righty. Thank you. Um, as You're a welcome. Program, everybody, uh, we hope that this was helpful for you, enlightening, educational, challenging, uh, fun. Um, and uh, as a brief program note for next week, uh, we're going to be having, on May 26th, a blast from the past uh, from our previous format with a discussion of current news and cases, as well as an open mic jam session. So have your resources and your questions ready to go, because you'll never know who will show up to answer them. And we hope you'll be able to join us for that. During the interim, we're always encouraging you to visit our past and future guests, respect those websites, listen to their previously recorded shows here on the Gallant Goose and Friends. So just go to www.gallantgoose.com and follow the link to our talk show page. And again, on behalf of our guest, Mr. Bob Hurt, and our dedicated team here at the Gallant Goose and Friends, we would like to thank you all. Have a great night, everybody, and we'll see you all next week. This is the Gallant Goose and Friends airing live from coast to coast and around the world on Thursday nights at 6.45 Eastern here on TalkShoe.com, program number 139-335. This is Big Papa Stanley reminding y'all when it comes to saving your house, don't let the bank of blues stop you from getting all your clues. We thank y'all for being here tonight. I was born in Illinois in a place they call Chicago. Illinois, a place they call Chicago. Now see, I was stuck on the city streets, where the songs survive, and I'm here to tell my story. Raised on the south side, in the zone they call the valley. We bought penny candy, chased rats up and down the alley. I was born in Illinois, in a place they call Chicago. You see, I was schooled on the city street with a strong surround. Seven, daddy worked two jobs, mama held it together, walked a mile to school, had to fight every day, sometimes I kept my lunch money, sometimes they took it away, I was born in Illinois, a place they call Chicago, Grew into a man I had to make 
Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.